You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, first, Ruin McCormack in Istanbul on the aftermath of the half-hearted coup and Tayyip Erdogan's crackdown on a very wide periphery of dissenters. Simon Carswell, then our Washington correspondent in Cleveland, on the opening of the much-awaited Republican convention and the official coronation of Donald Trump as the party's candidate for president. And then Lara Marlowe in Nice, reflecting on the mood in an angry city following the devastating attack by Mohamed Boulel. First to Istanbul and Ruin McCormack. This city is Erdogan's base. And what sense do you get of the city at the moment? In shock or relieved or, as one writer put it, melancholic? It's, it's a very divided city, isn't it? It is. Uh, at the moment, I suppose superficially things are back to normal. Um, if you were to arrive here not having known that there was a, an attempted coup last Friday and Saturday, uh, you, you wouldn't know um, in that the traffic uh, is as bad as it always is, the shops are open, um, business life is, is back to normal. But clearly um, there's a lot of tension in the city. As you say, it's um, it's Erdogan's own uh, home city. It's where he built his political base. Um, I was in a, a district called Kalimpasha this morning, which is where uh, Erdogan was born and raised and where he's extremely uh, popular. And um, you can see these, these vans going up and down the streets with megaphones on the roofs booming out uh, speeches by Erdogan from recent days. Um, there's Turkish bunting in the Turkish national colours on every street, um, and clearly it's all people are, are talking about. The government says that there are some they're looking for. Um, there's a high security presence all across the city. Yesterday, um, on Monday, there was a shooting at a municipal building in the in one part of the city where uh, a local deputy deputy mayor was shot. Now it's not clear that that was connected to the coup, but it's a indication of the of the, the general uh, edginess around the city this week. Now, in, in many people are reading this coup as, uh, if not organised by Erdogan himself, it's certainly an opportunity to entrench his position and continue the policies that he was continuing. He was applying before uh, eighteen thousand arrests and sackings of people from lists that com- clearly had been prepared in advance. Is there any more evidence uh, being presented by Erdogan? Uh, that that these are genuine arrests, that there there was a genuinely deep coup, or or do we do we accept what some papers are saying today that support levels were actually much deeper, and that these eighteen thousand reflects that depth of support? Eighteen thousand is a, a lot of people to round up in in a few days. Um, the, 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 among those eighteen thousand people are uh, generals, military generals, foot soldiers, judges, prosecutors, police officers, regional governors, um, right across the state apparatus. They've um, either suspended people or or, or detained them. Um, I spoke to a senior uh, official uh, uh, within the Turkish government yesterday who said. Uh, you know, we haven't presented evidence yet, but that it'll be for the legal process uh, to reveal that sort of evidence. We're going to have to um, charge people and then they're going to have to go through the courts and all of that uh, will emerge. If you take the judges, for example, I asked, you know, who are we talking about? This is a group of 3,000 prosecutors and judges who were uh, arrested um, or suspended within 12 hours of the uh, coup being thwarted on Saturday morning. 
I was told that there's two broad categories. First, you have people who were directly implicated in the coup or whose names appeared on lists that were seized by the military after the attempted coup. Uh, Their names were listed as people who would be uh, up for appointment if the coup succeeded. Um, Then you had a second category of people, they say, who uh, were in contact with the coup plotters. It's all very vague, and they say we're going to have to wait uh, until the court uh, process begins to learn more about what each individual is accused of. But clearly the uh, suspicion among uh, Erdogan's critics and um, many of the Western powers as well is that, as you say, Erdogan is using this opportunity to consolidate his own power, to stifle dissent. Um, I spoke to a lawyer yesterday who said among the judges who are arrested that she knows, there are Alevis who are um, part of a Shia minority, Turkey's biggest um, religious minority, and there are also known leftists. So the clear implication there is that um, the net has been cast much wider than alleged or supposed Gulenists, who Erdogan says uh, were were behind the the coup, and that they're rounding up any form of political opposition or or sources of dissent uh, within Turkish society. One has to ask the question, if if the support was as deep as they're now suggesting, then why didn't they make a better fist of the coup? That's right. There are there are contradictory reports as to just how organised it was. The initial impression on Saturday was that um, it was actually quite amateurish. You know, people uh, have referred quite often in the last few days to the fact that no figure had emerged on Friday night or Saturday morning. No people had no sense of who was in charge. Uh, that was a, a big mistake on the on the plotters' part. Another mistake clearly was not. Um, uh, not uh, being able to claim that they had control of the ministries. They didn't detain any government ministers. They didn't uh, shut down the private television stations. They didn't uh, shut down the internet. So leaving open all these channels of communication allowed Erdogan to project um, a sense that he was uh, safe, that he was still in control. He famously appeared on CNN Turk uh, through FaceTime to reassure his supporters and to encourage them to come out onto the streets. So there were all these mistakes, it seems, that the plotters made that helped uh, Erdogan ultimately to thwart the coup. But then again, there have been reports from within the Turkish government in the last few days that uh, actually the, the Turkish administration, the Turkish ministers, um, felt that the plotters actually came quite close to uh, to, to succeeding. Um, and, and were not for um, a number of factors, such as the uh, internet access, such as the fact that everyone was able to fly back from uh, his holiday resort in Mamaris to uh, Istanbul, that it that it could have could have succeeded. But yes, um, you, you would have thought that if um, if there were this many people, eighteen thousand people, directly or indirectly involved in the coup, and that um, their influence went all the way up to the top of the military, um, that they would have made a better fist of it. Now, the the, the government's central case uh, is against uh, the. Cleric Fethullah Gulen, who's based in, in, in Pennsylvania. How plausible is that argument? It's, it's, he's long been a bugbear of, of Erdogan, well, since, since they broke uh, as allies. But how, how plausible is the government case against him? Well, it, it depends who you ask. I mean, people were talking by the Erdogan government that uh, Gulenists control the judiciary and the legal system. Um, I spoke to several lawyers in the last few days who said, yes, they are 
people within the legal system who um, are sympathetic towards uh, Fethullah Gulen. Um, but A, that's not to say that they are necessarily coup plotters. Um, and B, it certainly wouldn't account for um, uh, the, the majority or very many of those of the 3,000 judges and prosecutors who were rounded up in recent in recent days. Um, the simple answer is that there's no, in the absence of evidence, there's no way of knowing A, whether Gulen himself uh, directly ordered or inspired the coup, as is claimed by Erdogan and his government, um, or B, uh, you know, how many of those uh, in Turkey who were behind the plot um, had any sort of link with him or his structures. Um, John Kerry yesterday, given that Erdogan has been claiming for a few days now that Gulen um, was at the heart of this coup, John Kerry sort of looked provide us with the evidence. If you want us to extradite him, you have to provide us with hard evidence. Um, uh, there was a senior member of the Turkish government who was on Turkish radio here this morning saying, well, we don't need to prove evidence because it's obvious. Now, that's not going to cut it, um, certainly not with the international community and not with many of Erdogan's critics who clearly suspect that what he's doing here is consolidating his own power, using the position of strength that he's now in, um, in the aftermath of, of the, the failed coup, um, and that he's accelerating many of the processes that have been in train in recent years. And so that means uh, rooting out any sort of opposition or threats to his own administration from within the military, um, uh, muzzling the judiciary as an independent arm of government, uh, and generally projecting his own power. That's been another theme in the last few days, that posters of Erdogan have gone up all over Istanbul. Uh, the Turkish flag is everywhere. As I mentioned, you've got these vans going up and down the streets, um, booming his his speeches into the streets. Um, and so clearly the suspicion among his critics is that he's, he's using to, to stifle dissent and, and, as I say, to protect his own power. Thank you very much, Ruben. You're listening to the Irish Times. And now to Cleveland, where demonstrators and counter-demonstrators giving delegates to the Republican Convention a noisy reception while on the scarcely quieter floor, last-ditch attempts by the never-Trump supporters are being pushed aside. Trump is said to be modelling himself on, of all people, Richard Milhouse Nixon. I don't know how many of our listeners will remember him. Uh, while his wife Melania has been lifting whole chunks of a Michelle Obama tribute to her husband to do the same to the Donald. We hear the comparison. And Barack and I were raised with so many of the same values. Like... You work hard for what you want in life. The values that you work hard for what you want in life. That your word is your bond, that you do what you say you're going to do. That your word is your bond, and you do what you say and keep your promise. Uh, This is going to be a very strange convention, Simon. It is. A very unconventional convention, but I suppose you're going to get that when you have someone like Donald Trump, a former reality TV star, uh, entertainment mogul, uh, casino owner, uh, you're going to, you're going to get a very, very different uh, convention. And we've already seen that in the first day, not least from the protests on the floor, but the nature of the speeches, the vitriolic rhetoric, the anger we saw coming out, uh, the anti-Hillary Clinton sentiment that we saw at the convention. It's all part and parcel of a very unusual convention. Certainly the Republicans I've spoken to in the last few days had said they, they they were not expecting anything they'd seen before, and I think they got that yesterday. And um, Trump's supporters had promised a, a, a different kind of list of speakers and, and a degree of showbiz razzmatazz. Well, yeah, and you got that last night. I mean, in some occasions it was bizarre. You need a former 
you had reality TV stars, you had a sitcom actor from Happy Days, the popular American TV show. I actually think that that was a good example of what they were trying to achieve at this convention. This actor, Scott Bio, came out as, um, you know, from this kind of seminal television program, Happy Days, a, a period of American life when everything was much simpler uh, the American dream was was much clearer. Nixon days, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and that that period where um, they showed an, a, a much more a simpler America, I guess. And the, the the comparisons they're trying to make is that they're painting this kind of dystopian view of America and really playing on what Donald Trump has played on throughout this campaign are the fears of Americans and this uh, kind of scary view of America being divided, there's civil unrest, uh, people are concerned about their security at home, they're uh, concerned about uh, terror attacks from abroad um, and on the US. And, and so it really all played into uh, what Americans, Americans' fears and, and really what Trump has capitalized on throughout this campaign. And we've been promised by Trump's uh, aides that we're now really going to see the real Trump do we know any more about that? Do we know what he is going to say that will transform our uh, sense of him? Uh, we've got some hints about that. I mean, the purpose of this convention is, there's a few few purposes to it. Uh, one key one is to introduce the presidential ticket, Trump and Mike Pence, to uh, millions of watching Americans uh, at home. Uh, and it's also, most importantly this week, is to unify the party, because this was a very div divisive uh, Republican primary. You have a very contentious candidate. Um, he got about 14 million votes in the primary, yet um, you have about 16 million votes going to all the other candidates. So by no means is he someone that the party backs. And you get that a lot on the floor of the convention. When I was walking around last night, there were some people who were Ted Cruz supporters who were supporters of some of the other candidates. And uh, some were reluctantly accepting that Donald Trump is their nominee. Uh, and some were refusing to accept it and, uh, and saying they were there almost out of loyalty to the Republican Party and nothing to do with Donald Trump. But the hints that we're getting as to what, what they're going to present Trump as is a much softer image of Trump, a much more personal image of Trump. And if it wasn't for the accusations of plagiarism um, on Melania's speech, Trump's speech last night uh, and linking it back to Michelle Obama's speech in 2008, I think we would have had a much more softer view of Donald Trump from what was, apart from the plagiarized parts, a very effective speech. The uh, New York Times columnist Richard Brooks, on the other hand, is saying that Trump is Trumpier, if anything, than ever, that he's, he's as bad, if not worse, than he has always been. Well, I think that that's the case, because while they are saying that they're here to unify the party, they almost can't help themselves. You had Paul Manafort, the Trump campaign manager, uh, doing morning interviews yesterday and attacking John Kasich, the Ohio governor, who is a never-Trumper. He's not supporting the candidate and he is not even attending the convention, which is highly unusual for a home state governor of a Republican party not to attend the Republican National Convention in his own state. Uh, and so Manafort really turned on Kasich. So while they're trying uh, their best to unify the party, you have statements being made by Manafort where he's describing the Bush family as part of the past and Donald Trump as part of the future. Um, and he's calling Kasich's response, his decision to stay away from this convention, petulant. So this is not really doing them any favours. But I think old habits die hard here. You're, you're seeing it, it's very difficult for the Trump campaign 
to distance themselves and, and turn over a new leaf and show that they're not quite as brash and blustering as they have been in the Republican primary campaign. And, and what about Paul Ryan and the leadership of the Republican Party and uh, who are now accepting that he is the candidate? How are they reconciling their previous hostility? Well, that's a good question. And I, I think they're it's a lot of confusion as to how they're reconciling it because they're here, uh, they're speaking. I have Paul Ryan, the highest elected Republican in the House, and you have Mitch McConnell, uh, the Senate leader, and they're both speaking at the convention this week. And I think they're doing it more for party unity. I think deep down they don't believe uh, they don't believe in Donald Trump's candidacy, but they have to do it in terms of keeping the party to get together. And, and I think if they didn't, I think you would see um, maybe more of the, uh, revolts, you'd see more more strength in the Never Trump movement if they weren't there. But last night, uh, Bob Dole was in the audience, and he's the only former Republican presidential nominee to attend this convention. Mitt Romney is staying away, John McCain is staying away, indeed the last two Republican presidents are staying away, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. So that in itself is a reflection that this is a very divided party, and there's a lot of people very unhappy with what they see as a hostile takeover of the party by, by Donald Trump. Thank you very much, Simon. And now some views from the floor of the convention. Do you think that Donald Trump can unite the party over this uh, four-day convention? Well, it might take longer than the four-day convention, but we'll make a heck of a good start in it. I'm sure that uh, Mr. Trump will have a lot to say at this convention, and that people will be surprised at uh, how, uh, uh, how, how unifying he can be. I mean, he's won the nomination, and once that uh, he sets aside away from the nomination towards Hillary Clinton, I think we'll all unify around him. Do you think he can win the presidential election in November against Hillary Clinton? I don't think so. There's no sign of I'll be voting no for him. I uh, hope he can. But um, I don't know that he's the kind of person that's going to bring the whole party and, uh, and win independence and be able to win the election. What can Mr. Trump do to unify the party over the coming days? Well, I think it's happening. One is one, one, one is the nomination um, of Mike Pence for vice president. I think that's a terrific selection, and it will unify the party to a significant degree. Because Mike Pence is, um, I mean, I served with Mike on the uh, on the Judiciary Committee in the House for at least eight years, and uh, we hammered out some pretty good battles along the way. I know that Mike is pro-life, he's pro-marriage, he's a constitutionalist, he's a, he's a fiscally responsible, and so when I put all of that together, that gives the conservatives more confidence than in, um, it gives the conservative a lot more confidence. So that's a gap that was missing with Trump. And I think that Mike Pence fills a lot of that gap. And then just this show going on here, we're together. We're developing camaraderie. We're understanding that we are all in this together. Who do you think you'll see this week? Uh, do you think you'll see a different Donald Trump? Um, I'm maybe a little bit. Um, I'm hoping that he'll maybe be a little more presidential, but we don't want him to change too much. I mean, that's why America likes him. I mean, he's so popular and he's, he's garnered so much of, of the, um, the Republican vote in the primaries. He's gotten the most votes of, of any GOP candidate in history. So we don't want him to change too much. Um, that's why he's, he's going to be here in a couple of days to be nominated. I hope we'll see the same Donald Trump we always see. I know he puts his foot in his mouth sometimes. And I know he 
he comes out with things that maybe would be better not said. But that makes me know the real Donald. That makes me know he's not fake. So what do you think that Donald Trump needs to do this week to unify the Republican Party? I think he needs to show up and be himself. And that's it. Thanks for listening to the program. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. When Emmanuel Valls, the French Prime Minister, went to Nice on, on Monday, uh, he was booed at a ceremony for the 84 who died in Thursday's attack. It was most unusual and didn't go down well entirely with the crowd. But Nice is hurting Naira, isn't it? Very much so. Um, I, I think people sort of felt that terrorist attacks happened in Paris, not, not uh, there. And they also felt that even though relations between Muslims and, and other people in Nice have not always been easy, that there was a sort of basic uh, modus vivendi between the communities. And now the National Front, which has always been strong in, in Nice, uh, is getting stronger. I interviewed a young man at the memorial yesterday who said he'd never voted for the National Front before, but this had made up his mind he was going to. So I think they've, they've won a lot of new voters. Um, it was interesting that a, uh, an official from the conservative LR, Les Républicains Party, accused the National Front of having uh, orchestrated the booing and hissing and jeering against Manuel Valls yesterday. Um, I was there and I thought it was really a spontaneous thing. Uh, people were just very, very angry. People were upset and sad, too. Not necessarily the same people. I found either they tended to be sorrowful and weeping, or they tended to be just really, really angry. And in this instance, they're lashing out at the, the easiest target, which is, of course, the government. Uh, now, it's another question about whether the government did everything that it should have or could have. Um, but I, I think that they feel their discourse, if you like, really adds up to we did everything we could and, it, you know, it, it wasn't, it was sorry if it wasn't enough. And they, they boast that they have foiled 16 terrorist attacks in the last two years and, and they talk about the number of imams they've expelled and mosques they've closed and, and so on. But um, the proof is in the pudding, and the fact that another 84 people died, that's out of more than 230 since January 2015. It shows that whatever it is they're doing isn't working. Yeah, I'm going to come back to, to the government and, and, and its role. But talking about Nice, it, it is a divided city, and the image that we have of sort of the seafront and glamorous rich tourists is very much only part of the story. And there, there are communities there of... Uh, indigenous, sort of uh, quite poor working class communities, uh, as well as, as North African communities. Yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, Nice faces south, it faces the opposite shore of the Mediterranean, obviously you can't see it, but a huge percentage of the Algerians who fled in 1962 when Algeria gained independence fled to Marseille and Nice, and you had large communities of Harkis, those were Arabs who fought for the French army, not against it, uh, large communities of Pied-Noir, uh, white Europeans who had uh, colonized Algeria, and then as the decades went on, more and more Algerians who would have been part of revolutionary Algeria, if you like, and these people coexisted rather uneasily. 
and more recently, there has been uh, a, quite a high percentage of use from the, the northern parts of Nice, which are further back from the, the beautiful seafront, uh, who have joined Islamic State, who've gone to Syria to fight. So there is a, the same phenomenon as elsewhere in France, on, only more so, of radicalization. And at the same time, you have uh, the Front National, the National Front, which says these people are taking over our beautiful city. We want our we want our city back. Uh, nice is ours, and they have no place here. And they want to send them all back to to Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. Uh, so yes, those tensions are there. Christian Estrosi, who is the main political figure in Nice, uh, he was the mayor of Nice for many years, and he's now deputy mayor because he wanted to be president of the region, a little bit like Vladimir. Putin um, juggling his offices or, or, or uh, Erdogan in Turkey. So anyway, Estrosi has been juggling all of these tensions between different communities. Um, some of the National Front voter I talked to said he could not forgive Estrosi for having dealt with the main Muslim organization. Uh, but, you know, Estrosi has, has tried to keep a balance. Um, and he's, he's done it more or less. But there's, there's fear. There have been a lot of uh, incidents since Thursday night, women wearing headscarves being shouted at, uh, take that thing off or go home. Uh, there were very few Arabs at the, the ceremony yesterday, which was attended by, they estimate, 42,000 people. I, I only saw maybe three or four the whole time. Uh, and I think they're scared. Um, they feel threatened. They, they feel the hostility. So there are two scapegoats, really, the, the Muslim Arab community and the government. And the National Front support is coming from uh, the, the middle class or from white working class uh, communities? I'd say it's more the latter. It's, it's more sort of petty bourgeois. Um, it's interesting. I, was, uh, I had dinner last night with John Montague, the Irish poet, and his wife, uh, Elizabeth Wassell, who's American. And they were saying, you know, you, can, you really sense who is National Front. There's a look about them. You can see it. And, and I had noticed that the place where I was buying my newspapers in the morning, um, the, the, I thought the newspaper vendor was a National Front woman. I, there was just something about the way she dressed, the sort of surly attitude. Um, they, they have this kind of chip on their shoulder very, very often and, and resent foreigners, resent people asking questions. Um, it, it's just that there's just a, a sort of feeling about them. And, and uh, John and Elizabeth indeed said that there was, a, there was a restaurant in their street that they never go into because it, those were sort of those kind of people. Uh, one, one just feels it. The, the Irish community is in, in Nice is, is significant. I think there's quite a lot of Irish people living there. Yeah, I don't have a figure for you, Patty, but um, there are a lot of Irish people, a lot of Irish tourists going back and forth. There's a, a pub called Manolan's Pub, which is just one block back uh, from the Promenade des Anglais, where a lot of Irish young people go. And indeed, about 30 Irish uh, young people work for Manolan's. They have, they have three pubs, I should say. There's one in the port, and there's one near the Promenade, and there's another one in Cannes. But there are about 30 young Irish people working for those pubs. Um, and then you have people like, for example, Bono, who is just down the, 
the, the coast in Ayres and was actually dining in a restaurant, in the same restaurant as the mayor of Nice on the, on the night of the attack. Uh, uh, Paris Manch had an article about how, how um, Estrosi, sorry, the, the former mayor of Nice, we should say, Estrosi was so happy that night because Bono and, and Ali came in and, you know, they were all hugging and, and there was a big party and everyone was having a good time. And then, and then um, the attack happened, of course. Uh, so, yes, there are Irish people, and as I said, they range from students working in, a, in an Irish pub for, for the summer or year uh, to rock stars, uh, and you get the whole assortment. I remember the, the Irish Times had a, an interview with Ray McSharry, the former uh, EU commissioner, who was having dinner in a hotel on the Promenade des Anglais and, and saw some of the attack. Uh, so, yes, there is a, there's a large Irish community, but it's a, sort of a revolving Irish community. It, it changes a lot. Well, what do we know now about Mohamed Bouhlel and, and his connections particularly with IS? In a way, membership and non-membership distinction doesn't really matter, does it? Uh, well, the, the effect is just as, just as devastating or more devastating. I mean, he, this man single-handedly uh, killed 84 people and it took 10 men to kill 130 people on November 13. So he was certainly very efficient. Um, according to the prosecutor in his press conference late yesterday, uh, Mohamed Lawaj Boulal uh, did not have any direct links with Islamic State, or at least not any direct links uh, which they have identified and found. And they're still holding, uh, I think it's six men, and there, there's suspicions that one or two of them might actually have helped him logistically in some way or might, might have known about his plot. They're not sure. But they believe that he basically planned to organize this himself. For example, one of the photographs on his uh, mobile phone was of an article in Nice Matin newspaper from last January 1st. And the headline on the article was, uh, he drove a, a vehicle deliberately onto the terrace of a restaurant. Uh, so he was obviously thinking about this for a very long time. His conversion to Islam appears to have been much more recent. Uh, the prosecutor, uh, François Molin, said that it was only in the last two weeks uh, before he did this atrocity that uh, Lawaj Boulal actually started doing research on Islam on the Internet. Um, he was looking up things like the Eid al-Fitr, the feast after Ramadan. Uh, he was looking, looking up verses from the Quran and, and the sort of chants that Islamic State uses. Also, he was looking up very violent uh, pictures and, and photographs of Islamic State fighters with their, with their flag. Unlike uh, several other recent uh, killers, he did not, however, make any sort of pledge of allegiance to Islamic State. He didn't record one and post it on the Internet like a, a couple, two killers last uh, month in France and in Florida did. Uh, and he, he doesn't seem to have, um, have had any contact with them, really. I mean, he, he'd had a very... Um, uh, checkered past, I suppose you could say, very violent. He'd been an alcoholic. He'd been under treatment for uh, depression. He had, uh, I think the prosecutor put it, unbridled sexuality. He had a lot of partners, both male and female. He seems to have had one principal lover who was more than 40 years older than him. Uh, and he'd been very, very violent uh, to his wife. He'd, he'd beaten her repeatedly. She had a, got a court order to keep him out of the house. He'd also attacked her 
mother, and I even heard, I'm not confirmed, but I heard that he even attacked his wife's grandmother. Um, so he was a, obviously a very, very unpleasant and unstable uh, person, but he seems to have found religion in, in his last 10 days or so. Uh, one explanation I've heard repeatedly from French experts on jihad is that if you are a sinner and you commit a, a quote, act of martyrdom, unquote, uh, that all of your sins, every sin you've ever committed in your whole life is wiped away at one go. And perhaps uh, he believed this. Perhaps that was what he was trying to do. Thank you very much, Lara. Thanks to Ruin McCormick. Simon Carswell and Larla Marlow, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer John Gacy. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. (laughs) 